Welcome to episode 47 of Texting, coming to you from sunny Glendale in California. I'm Justin Vincent. That's it. And now you're supposed to say. And, <laughs> and co- I'm Jason Roberts coming. What, what am I supposed to say? You're coming spo- to you live from Pasadena, California. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're supposed to kind of make up your own thing. <laughs> well, thanks for the heads up there. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I'm Jason Roberts coming to you from Pasadena, California, about three miles away from Glendale. So uh, yesterday, uh, yourself and the um, the tech the tech lunch crew came over to my place to watch um, England versus America on soccer. I was good. Right, and and so uh, you're new to this whole soccer thing, which is kind (laughs) of strange for an Englishman, right? Well, I'm not. I'm not new to it, but it's just, it's not like, I don't passionately follow it. Right. I thought it was a very telling, it was about um, halfway through the game, I think, and I, I, I think it was right over the point where there was a goal was scored, or almost scored, and you go, you know, an interesting thing about the uh, the app store is, and we're all looking at you like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> what, does a, what does a soccer game have anything, what does an iPad or the app store have anything to do with the soccer game? It was clear you were only very uh, lightly paying attention to the game itself. And but but unlike Mark, who was basically two inches away from the screen the whole way through the game, like going, "Come on, come on!" <laughs> yeah, no, he is flipping out. Yeah, for uh, Mark, by the way, is the uh, is a friend of mine who um, I'm working on the uh, iPhone app with. But you're also playing the same football soccer team, don't you? Yeah, no, so, uh, Mark and I have been. Uh, good friends for about 10 years now when I first moved back out to California um, and he he has played on my uh, soccer team for the past 10 years um, and he's a very good player and he's uh, extremely passionate about soccer that's for sure nice yeah, yeah so he he tends to get really wound up about stuff like that I as I mentioned to you during soccer games he's like your Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde personality so off the field when it's not in the game he's a very rational reasonable nice low-key person but in the middle of a soccer game boy he just is like he's mr hyde i mean he's completely uh you know out of control and just yelling at the ref and you know arguing with the other players and it's just a nightmare yeah. half <laughs> being half german and half sicilian i can understand yeah <laughs> he right. kind of keeps he, he you know he uses his german side to keep his cool and keep calm and not say too much but then the you know once the thermometer rises it hits sicilian yeah yeah <laughs> No, he's a he's a good friend, so I, I I put up with it. But you know, I sort of just ignore him during the game when when he has his tantrums. I'm just kind of I just tell him to just you know you know try and keep it down so you don't get a yellow card. You know, just control yourself. But I mostly just ignore him because if I if I engage him, it's just gonna make it worse. <laughs> you know. Well, so so um yeah no that, that was it was nice. It was really good to have you guys over. Um, so get, getting into texting and, and the tech stuff tell us a little bit about um how, how you're doing with app ignite okay so what's going on so this past week um we've been working on uh editing your uh views so our, our pages for instance uh, i'm not exactly sure what the best term is to use um but a lot of the time had been spent over the past few months working on um, models and, 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 and uh, being able to edit models and manage all the different types of potential relationships and right. everything between yeah. the models. Models being the, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a combination. You can think of them as the tables in the database. Um, you can think of them as just the objects, underlying object data structures. 
and the uh, the views are sort of like your forms and your list views and your instance views and things like that. So um, I think we finally got to the point where the um, where the model stuff is working really pretty solidly, and okay. and it was time to like move on. And I think I mentioned in the last podcast a little bit of how I felt like we got a little too deep into some edge cases for the models, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I felt pretty strongly it was time to 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 move on down and the, the the road and and work on some other stuff. So, so tell us about the edit stuff that you're working on. Well, uh, so for a view, you have some different categories of things that you might want to edit. One would be what what fields or properties are going to be visible. So if you had say, um, I don't know, like a like a task is your is your model. You might say, well, what's the summary field? Is that sh- displayed? Is the description field? Is the priority or field as a status field or property what do you want to call them are those visible or not visible and uh maybe what what's the format of the field so if it, if it was like a date field like immensely uh, the task was a a uh, a date that the that um that the issue was reported uh you might say well it, assuming it's like this task has something to do with like a, a bug tracking system right you say well what's the format of the date is this a date or is it like a lapse time like three weeks ago or whatever um Things like that. So you have formatting, you have uh, sorting. If you're looking at a list view, you have um, filtering. Like maybe you all show all tasks except for tasks that are completed. Um, you have things like pagination. So do we show 25 or 50 tasks? So in it's task kind list? of like properties. It's like properties is what you're building right now. Uh, well, what do you mean by what do you mean by that? It's like, well, you know, it, I guess in a standard operating system, you'd right-hand click and you'd click go to properties, and then you'd be able to set its different settings. So it's like properties and settings is what you're working on. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole system is kind of like that, right? I mean, the whole system is about setting the properties or the settings of the application, and I'm. You, the, what I'm talking about now is being able to edit the settings of the view of the, of each individual view. So okay, when, I, yeah. when I term properties, I term properties as sort of like think of them as the columns in the database table. If the ta- if the model is oh, so essentially an object representing the table, the properties are the uh, columns. Okay, so you're thinking of properties like as in object oriented programming. Uh, That's kind of what I'm thinking about now. Okay. When I'm talking about views, the views have these corresponding, I call them view items. A view item corresponds to a model property. Um, and because just because, you ha- just because a model has a bunch of properties on a particular view, you may, may, may or may not want to display that particular property. So if you're looking at a list view, a, pro- a model could have 20 different properties. But in a list view, you may only show like five or six of those properties. So tell me, do you, when, when you have these settings on a per model stroke view basis, are you still are you kind of uh, abstracting that into another table um, or an, some other row or something else, or are you essentially storing it all in a big blob field, or how are you doing it? Uh, I'm not sure. Give me an example. I want to make sure I understand what you're talking about. Okay. Well, so you have you have a, you have an existing view, right? And okay. um, you can have pagination, and you want to set a default sort order. So you store that okay. default sort order somewhere. Do you store it in the same row in the database as the actual view itself, or do you like abstract it out to another table that where you have name value pairs kind of thing? No. See, the way it works is that um, all of these uh, let's call them settings, all of these uh, things that describe uh, what the properties are for a model or view or what the um, what uh, what a view how a view works. 
as right. you're describing it. The sort order, the filters, the pagination, etc. That is all described in a single definition file. So an application would have a single text file that describes everything in it. All the models, all the relationships, all the views, um, all the permissioning, everything. Okay. okay. And so I created the sort of, I should call it a, a DSL or domain-specific language, which is more or less just um, a hierarchical sort of um, list of, of, of objects and describe what their properties are. Hmm. Um, so everything's described and stored in a single definition file, um, hmm. which is very simple to read. It's very simple to view. It kind of looks like YAML a little bit for anybody yeah. who... YAML's my favorite language, actually, my favorite kind of way of storing that kind of stuff. It's very similar to YAML. I made it a little different um, just because I, I sort of had a different view on how I wanted some things to work, but it's sort of similar to that. You know, you have like, like a model object would have model on one line and it would have a corresponding end on a few lines below it and in between would have indented would be different things like class name or, you know, whatever. Um, it's really funny because basically, you know, the more you talk about this, mm -hmm. what, essentially what you've done without knowing it is you've basically created ruby on rails <laughs> no, <laughs> which, no. which, it sounds incredibly similar to ruby on rails and that type of framework and it's all it almost makes me think that is you know good programmers will will end up at the same place once they've keep on refactoring well you know i mean you know there, there's sort of a general um design uh i guess a framework approach to how you look at these uh, applications and whether you're using and there's any number of of you know model view controllers and um, things like that, but what I'm trying to do is make everything declarative, so everything can be defined in a definition file, and and then just be extended but or overridden with some simple um, callback functions, right? Um, if necessary, but hopefully 90 to 98 percent or even 100 percent of of simple applications will be able to find just by setting a, a bunch of different properties or settings, right? So anyway, but to get back to your to answer that real question about how is this information stored, it's stored in a definition file, but then every time you make a change to the application, to this definition file, the, the, the code that, that, that runs the application is regenerated. So you have, it's, it's all, you know, completely in the code, in the uh, PHP that's generated itself. The definition file is just used as a source for what you, what you generate. Um, yeah. So that's, that's how it works. Right? So in a sense, the, that file is almost like a functional, uh, what, what are those called? Those functional static languages. Yeah, it's so, like a declarative language. Yeah, right. It, okay. so it's, a, it's just like a declarative, like, okay, this is, this is what it is. These are the models it has. These are the views it has. This is the relationship between the models. This is the permissions on the models. This so is it's, the it's in that file that you store, right, I want this uh, page to be sorted by first name and I want it to be order descending. Right, and I want the pagination here, and do I want batch delete or not, or do I want, you know, which order I want the fields in, do I want a link on this field, all that kind of stuff. So hmm. all the things that you would normally have to write a lot of um, sort of imperative or procedural code to make happen, you just say, I want it to work this way, I just want to set the setting as X, and then, the, and then it happens. And can and, you manually edit that file, or is that file something that's only dealt with through some kind of GUI? Now, I, I expose it for myself because I need to go in and, 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 and I need to continually go in and look at the file and see as I've gone through the UI and I've generated stuff or made changes, 
did those changes show up correctly in the, in the file? Did they get saved? Were they read incorrectly? You know, because obviously I, in development, things are breaking constantly. So I go back to the definition file and I go, oh, wait a minute, you know, what, what happened here? But I don't think that's something that I would want to have people editing directly because it's just too, it'd be too easy to screw things up. Because what happens is when you have a definition, an application definition file, and then you make some changes to it, I have a, a very specific way which I do a internal diff of those two definition files and figure out what needs to change in, like, say, the database structure right. to do the migration. So if you go on and, and you make too many changes, the um, and, and there's not a very specific diffing process to it, uh, stuff could get screwed up. So now I can go in it because I know what what will and won't happen in the process, but somebody else could easily screw stuff up, and then I'd spend forever on tech support trying to explain to people, oh, you can't do X, Y, and Z to the file directly. Yeah, okay, so, that makes sense. And you're not making it for programmers anyway, so. No, yeah, I mean, the whole point is to give something to people who aren't programmers and allow them to see their ideas come to life without having to, you know, hire a bunch of developers. And then when they do want stuff done that's more complicated or very specific, they just have a very small amount that needs to be done and that a programmer could knock out in a few hours or a day or something as opposed to weeks or months. Um, and for instance, you know, Working with, uh, I've been working with Taylor Norris, who we had on, on episode uh, 44. Right. Uh, he's been working with Mark on the iPhone app, um, as I mentioned before. And so Taylor is, 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 he's been sending me the HTML files and CSS and everything corresponding to the website. The website itself for Mark's app, um, it has been, his, there's an iPhone app, but there's also a website version. And the website was all developed using App Ignite. So all the data structure and everything that gets fed into the iPhone app that the iPhone app uses is managed and controlled and, and everything through uh, App Ignite. But now we have to create this external website that users of the, of this, of the, web, of the app or whatever would need to use. And so yeah. it has to be all this very fancy CSS and HTML and uh, Mark was like, yeah, you know, it's like once an applicant gets to a certain point, I mean, someone like P, uh, like uh, Taylor could just build everything himself, you know? I was just thinking, one of the things, one of the issues that AppIgnite and I think Mash API would suffer from the same thing, is if you have lots of people running their, their websites on your system, mm -hmm. it makes updates a very interesting concept because obviously if you push through an object update that has a bug in it, if for some reason, some unexpected interaction you could essentially affect thousands of people's products. So, oh, oh right, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, well, so, so the question is, is like the, the, there's a versioning question, and, and it's almost like one thing I was thinking about Mash API is, is that you know, perhaps it should be like an opt-in versioning system so that people can themselves up, you know, push it through the upgrade path and do their own tests. Now, here's the thing. Now, everybody's application every every individual application runs on it in its own sort of subdomain right and it's all generated code mm -hmm. so all the li any any libraries that the application uses which is only a handful of, of files everything else is generated custom for you based on the, your definition the definition of the particular application right. so there might only be like you know six you know sort of utility or base files you know, database.php, for instance, which is sort of a database abstraction layer I use, and a few some simple some simple things like that. And in order for that to change, you would have to go in and regenerate your application, which would then copy over some of the utility files. So if I if if I um, changed a, a base utility file, 
it would get yeah. copied over in the regeneration. Or if I change something about AppIgnite, about how it generates certain types of you know, controllers or models type of code, that would only happen after you regenerate it. So what would happen is, you know, before you regenerate, it could say, hey, this is a new version. Do you want to regenerate using this new version or old version? But presumably the generated code itself is going gonna, is gonna to be subject to bug fixes. Right. That's right. So, so what happens when you you make a fix that fixes generated code? Do you then push that out to all thousand apps? How's that only work? if they only if they go in and regenerate their application. So if they go in and edit their application, their stuff does not get regenerated unless um, they regenerate it themselves manually. Well, no. But what I'm saying is is what, you know how are you going to handle that? Are you, are you going to send messages out to those people or? Yeah, you know, I mean, I haven't thought that far down, but yeah, you could clearly, like, they log in or they get an email and say, hey, you know, they're, you know, X, Y, and Z bugs have been fixed or new features have been added. So if you want to regenerate your your application, just go regenerate, just hit regenerate once and it'll all be, and all this new, it'll all be generated new. Um, And I'm also, one other thing I'm going to do is have like a, like a dev staging deployed or production version of their app. So if they, so they can go around and mess around and be editing the app with some test data or some slice of their data and then if they want to say okay push this make this live then their live production version but what about um schema changes like does everyone have their own database that's right oh good good okay so if everyone's got their own database then that's fine so you can you'll you'll be versioning the schema changes as well yeah, everybody is pretty much uh, completely isolated they all have their own database their own schema their own code their own copies of the utility files nothing is dependent on that's that's interesting so because because a lot of people would say you know that it should be a multi-tenant model rather i mean i i know it's kind of 50 50 but some somehow i think there's a lot of benefits out of the multi-tenant model but you're going down the single tenant model which is interesting well the reason i you know i i i've following this approach is that just everything is just sort of isolated there wasn't really any benefit to keeping it all together because everybody's database structure is completely different you know it's whatever you generate could be anything so why would i make it one ginormous database (laughs) you know i mean it doesn't make any sense i mean if everybody had the same database structure then sure but everybody's is is they're all their tables and and uh, everything is just so can someone export the whole thing and just put run it on their own server like do you have an option for that i I, you know that and that and that'll be just really come down to the business model approach like how do i how do I want to do that, right? I mean, so if you charge, if, if, if the idea was to charge by the number of users you could have on an application or things like that, then it would be an easy way to cheat it as someone just goes and generates it and, and, and with one or two user account set up or whatever for their, their minimal account, and then they go and just export the whole thing, and then they go from there. So that's something to keep that I'll have to keep in mind like how do I want to do that but the other thing is I also want to make it so that people don't feel like they're trapped so if they want to um, use it just export it run it on their own servers they don't feel like I sort of think that it should be something like um, maybe a thousand bucks right for them to get for them to get it off your server and then pay a continual license fee of uh, I don't know like 50 bucks a month something like that yeah, so there'll be something. I, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I, and the, I mean, I guess if, if it was me, I would, I would probably go, oh, well, I want to, worst comes to worst, I might, maybe, what if I want to write it, not run it on my own server, or we want to run it internally at our company, and um, something like that. Um, you know, 
am I trapped? Can I not get it out? And that, that kind of stuff. So you have that kind of feeling, but you also don't want people to be cheating you the whole time. Well, think, I mean, think about it this way. Like, how, how much does it cost someone to develop a website, to, you know, a proper, decent, custom-style custom, custom style website? I mean, it costs, like, 100000 plus, right? Well, so, even, even if you do some small, like, internal, you know, thing, I mean, it still could take, uh, you know, a programmer, even if it was a piece of crap and it was ugly and it just some still, still might take one programmer a few weeks to get something basic up. Well, that's right. Group, right? It's still, that's a lot, you know, and you pay the programmer, even if he's low-paid, you know, guy sitting in some small city and paid a whole lot. I mean, you know, you should probably... Five, five to five thousand to ten thousand dollars to get something simple built, right? Yeah, and just in terms of salary and things like that. Yeah, I mean, right. So it's real, real money. <laughs> so I think it would be a good deal, personally, for like a, like around a, about a thousand buck mark for them to be able to have run it on their own servers, because essentially, if it, if that was going to cost them a hundred grand to develop, and you've saved them, I don't know, forty percent of their development costs, like it's it's cheap cheap for them but the but the the counter argument to that is well you know why should i pay for why should i pay for a framework when i can get free frameworks why should i pay like for i this? said it, it you know it, you're gonna be able to develop you know most of your app 10 times faster than you could do you know hand coding it in rails or django or right. whatever else i mean the, you know it's funny the idea i first had for epic night i can't remember what it was i think they were talking about almost it might have been like one of these um programming like you know build an app over a weekend kind of thing with a group of people right and i think someone had made a comment just like a comment or something about how you could almost in with ruby on rails sit there and and sit next to like the the person with the idea and just say okay what do you want and kind of build it in real time in front of them right and well rails is you know can be an order of magnitudes you know productivity increase over just writing things from scratch, it's still an order of magnitude away from that. I mean, you're still not going to put everything together smack in front of the guy, unless the guy's just going to fall asleep in the chair next to you. I mean, yeah, you could build something in, you know, a week or two that must have take, might have taken three months, um, but you still can't build it in 15 minutes. I'm very yeah. curious to see if it suffers from the same issue that Drupal suffers from. So Drupal... A lot of people think, a lot of, let's say, entrepreneurs think that Drupal is like the best way, the fastest way to start their business and get out there if they want to build a custom website because Drupal has an API and it lets you build on top of it. So what what Drupal does is, you know, you can get something, you can get like a basic website, you can get an admin, an admin interface up and you can get stuff running really fast. So you can get the first, say, 70%. But then to get the, to, you know, the, between 70% and 100%, to where you actually want to go for your custom product is really difficult and slow. I mean, it really is. And if, if anyone says it isn't, they're just, I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen like three companies have this problem. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just, and, and the reason is, is because it's a very specific way of doing things. It's, it's obviously, it's, it's complete framework. It's its own framework. And when, when it has like, I don't know, an, an email system or an admin interface system, it's very kind of, this is how Drupal does it. And if you want to, doing you know something very specific it's very difficult to customize it and so i'm wondering how you're going to ultimately get around that problem make it so that people can get that last 30 percent there fast 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm keeping that in mind, right? Because I'm the I'm one of those very particular people about how I want things to work. So if I'm using it, I'm really like, well, what if I want to do this, or what if I want to do that? You know, and I, I'm constantly trying to think of those things and not paint myself in the corner or box users in. Um, I want to make things very flexible so they can do things a variety of different ways. Now, with that said, just because I say that doesn't mean I can necessarily make that happen, at least on the early versions. It's well, gonna if you can, I mean, that's that's going to be the the defining factor that's just going to make the the product fantastic, in my opinion. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it you're right. I mean, that's a it's a big deal, and it's going to take a lot of work. And you know, obviously, I'm a, this is an ambitious project, and um, <laughs> there's no question about that. And I I'm wonder sure if you should just get funding for it. It's funny that you want that you want to build a project like this in your kind of you know twenty percent spare time kind of thing. Like it's such a huge undertaking. It's almost like, I, I just feel like, Jason, look, if anyone should be going out and getting a couple of million bucks funding, it's you. <laughs> well, the thing is, I don't really, I've done that before, and it's just a huge distraction going and raising money and all this stuff, and I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to, I don't want to have to deal with anyone, what anyone else wants or thinks, because I don't care what they want or think. All I right. care what I want or think. Yeah. I just don't, says, oh, we should do this or that. I don't want to humor anybody else and say, well, yeah, sure, okay, fine, we'll do it this. I just, I don't really... I'm doing it my way, you know, it's or with guy on it's, it's guy on and I are doing it the way we want to do it. And, you know, we're going to do it right. And we're going to do it, you know, maybe it'll move a little more slowly than it could if we had five people working on it. But then again, it takes a long time to get all these people up to speed and give it integrate and doing stuff. And yeah, maybe a year from now, things would be moving way faster. But in, in the interim, in the first next six to nine months or a year, it would just be like really take a hit in productivity because I'd spend all my time, you know, talking to investors and setting up meetings and doing this and doing that. And it's just, uh, you know, and I just don't, I just want to do it the way I want to do it, I guess. And, and you know, the thing is I read an article about that. I, I think it was a TechCrunch article and they talked about Something like, you know, is, is, is our startups or entrepreneurship, is it just about the exit? And they, they were, and the guy writing the article said something about how um, there was there were these different um, startups, you know, that they didn't take any money and they did things exactly the way they wanted to do it, and they paid themselves a nice, nice big fat salary, and you know, they just didn't worry about it. Like well, I don't need eggs, I don't need to sell my company. Well, that's I mean, basically, the music industry is the perfect analogy because. Essentially, it's like, you know, are you going to be a signed artist to uh, EMI and get, you know, the, the $2 million advance? Or are you going to be like an indie label going around printing up your own CDs, um, dealing with your fans directly? And basically, you say, like, when, when, if, you're an indie, if you're an indie artist and you sell a CD for 10 bucks, you get 8 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas if you're Coldplay and you sell a CD for 10 bucks, you get 25 cents. You right. Know? So you've got to sell a lot less if you're an indie artist, you know. And yeah, and exactly, it's much more about the the kind of journey and being involved in all the aspects of the business. So that's yeah. the route. That's the route you're taking. And I think, I mean, I think kudos, kudos. Yeah. For that. I just um, plus here's the thing. I mean, you know, and I've mentioned this before. It's like with three kids and a wife and a mortgage in California. I mean, I you know, I got to make a good solid you know yep. income. I mean, yeah. it's I, it's not it's not cheap. It's not like I'm 25 living with a buddy in an in a, an apartment somewhere where I can live off you know $1,500 a month or something. And uh, so with that with that constraint on my life, I have to um, I it, it'd be difficult to raise enough money to be able to pay myself a full time uh, salary. 
that could cover that. I can make more money part-time consulting than I could probably um, than it would be than I could make if I if I was doing a startup. I mean, I just well, might not be able to pay myself enough. It's interesting because, uh, like, I'm just I've I've just um, submitted Swarm to the App Store, mm-hmm. and um, I'll come back to that in a second. But with with Plugio bringing in a th- around about a thousand a month, and if Swarm sells, I've worked out if it sells like twenty five copies a day, that's you know I'll, I'll be pulling in. I guess over three thousand, maybe four thousand a month. That's kind of getting mm-hmm. very, very close to kind of real sustainability. And then I could essentially, if if I can get those two projects onto autopilot, then I could basically go into Mash API. So, kind of turn around and without the funding, make that thing happen. That you know the larger idea. Well, see, your larger idea, your Mash API, you tried to raise money and you weren't able to. Yeah. No. Right? Exactly. So that whole point of like this whole idea that you're just going like, to go raise money for your idea and it's not going to be a problem. I mean, it's hard to do. And I think it would be hard for me to raise money because it's just – I'm the only one here in the States. I, I work with Guyon. Guyon lives in Norway. Guyon has a full-time job. And he just works like – you know, like I said, we just work you know, an hour, hour and a half a day on a weekday together on this. That's all he can really put in. And if I went to investors, I said, oh, yeah, I work with this guy. He's part-time in Norway. They're going to be like, well, what, what is that? that, you that know? Wasn't the, point, the, the point that I was trying to get to was – Maybe it would be interesting for you to consider that kind of multiple s- small revenue stream approach as well. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, no, I'm not saying smaller I'm not, projects. I'm not, yeah, I'm just saying, like, I'm just going back saying, you know, just just to think how hard it would be for me to tell a story to an investor that they would want like. Yeah, no, no, understood, you know, understood. Not, and your best, your best bet for investors is if you have two or three of you. Probably two is the best. You, one guy who's maybe like a designer, you're the developer, and maybe one other guy if you had three was more the business side who could do a little coding or design or something else. That's your perfect, that's your probably highest probability team. Right. And you're all can go full time on it. And you all don't have to, you know, you can all live off, you know, smaller salaries so the investors don't feel like you're milking the milking them to just pay yourselves or something. Um, but, that's easy to do, but I'm not in a situation that would make that very easy. But would you consider the smaller revenue stream approach? I mean, because oh, cons- having, having few smaller revenue streams. Well, because consider consider this, right? We've we've been talking about this stuff. We've we've been doing the show for a year now, right? And in the process of a year, I've basically at the beginning of just about when we started the show, actually, Mash API fell out, and I just realized I couldn't get funding for it. Mm-hmm. So during that year, I think um, I've now been able to launch two of these smaller revenue stream things. Right. So yep. rather than work on that big idea, I've worked on a couple of smaller ideas, got that money coming in. I'm wondering, is that an approach you might consider? Because that's the kind of because th- basically, if you could work on that project 24 seven, it mm-hmm. would be, you know, a huge, huge benefit to it. So it's almost like maybe it's worth you doing something like that. Well, um, I, yeah, my plan is similar. It's just that my my small revenue project, I guess, is Abignite. So rather than trying to go out and raise money for Mash API like you did, I'm 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 going to approach Abignite more how you did with with Pluggy or Swarm. It's just I'm just going to do it whatever time I have, you know, which probably amounts to somewhere between fifteen, probably fifteen hours a week, twenty maybe on a good week. Um, and I'm going to work on it as fast as I can, get something out as soon as I can, and start charging as soon as I can. And maybe for the first six months, I'm making, you know, $500 a month, whatever. Right. But, you know, you just, I, I've kind of like the five-year plan. You know, I'm not okay. trying short, I'm not going after any shortcuts. I don't believe, I, I, I don't think there's any get-rich-quick schemes or shortcuts or anything like that. And so I figure if five years from now, if I can comp- be completely financially independent, I, I'm making all my income off Fab Ignite, and I don't have to do any more consulting, that would be fantastic. I don't, you know, the 20-year plan would kind of 
piss me off. <laughs> That's too long, right. you know. Because, uh, but the you know, oh, this has to be you know, this has to replace my income. Or I'm doing this in like you know a year or eighteen months. Yeah, it doesn't, that doesn't have to happen. But it would be nice to where it's like you know, in two years from now, I really only have to bill three hours a day, and then I'm kind of you know, that's that's that that and on top of whatever I'm for night is is I'm done. Uh, that's all I need to do because right okay. now I need to bill probably six hours a day. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to try and scale out of consulting over time if, once Epic Night can make some income. That's my approach. And the other thing is, like, I just want to do, I want to work on something that I really believe in, that I think is really cool, that I think a lot of people are going to find value, that I can work on for five years and not get bored of it and be like, oh, I can't believe I work on this stupid project. I mean, why am I spending my time on this? So you want to be, you want to be a hedgehog. You don't want to be a fox. Uh, explain that analogy to me. So, uh, like, a hedgehog has one big idea, and and a fox has lots of little ideas. Mm-hmm. So you want to you want to go with that hedgehog because obviously the hedgehog to protect itself it just curls up into a ball and then no one can hurt it. Whereas a fox, for its survival, it it has a whole bunch of different strategies. Well, look, I mean, you know, it just happens that Apignite it happens to be a bigger idea, the idea that I want to work on. You know, if, if, if it happened that I had, I have nothing against smaller ideas. Hey, I think- hey I'm, I'm not saying that being a hedgehog's bad. I mean, every, yeah. every, you know, all the, every billionaire on the planet is, has been a hedgehog. You know, there's, there's no foxes who are billionaires, right? Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, I'm like you in the sense that I have lots of ideas. I have an idea a day, <laughs> right. you know, and I have, I could probably come up with a list of 10 things that I would be, I would love to be working on right now. But I know that if I split my energy between, between too many different projects, especially with the little time that I have available after my consulting is done for the day, I would get nothing accomplished. Yeah. And it just happens that Appignite is the project that gets me really excited. It's what I think about when I'm falling asleep at night, it's when I'm taking a shower, when I'm eating, it's what I'm thinking about, you know, constantly because I, I, I'm, and that's, that's what I got to work on, right? That's it's just cool. that itch I have to scratch. And, you know, and I just want to do it. And I, I just want to do it the absolute right way. It's another reason why I don't want to get investors is I just, even if, even if I could find an investor that, hey, I understand your constraints and we'll make it work, you know, I'm kind of hesitant because then I have to do it to some degree the way they want it done. You know, if, damn I mean, it, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. <laughs> if I was an investor and I was listening to this show over, you know, the, the year that we've been doing it, I would have. I would be like calling you up and going because, it, like, in a sense, you're kind of proven your commitment already uh-huh. over the last year to this. You know, I'd be calling you up. I'd be like, you know, Jason, I've been listening to you talk about this project for the last year. I I I want a piece of this. I want to give you some money. <laughs> I just, that's well, what I'd be doing. <laughs> well, it's nice to say that. It's nice for you to say that. I, you know, I think. Well, two things. One is. Uh, most of our listeners are probably not investors. They're probably so <laughs> no, <I'm> like, <laughs> hey, dude, I like your idea. I got like total, I got $20 just burning a hole in my pocket. I got your name on it. <laughs> I That's totally right. want to put it in that. And then, uh, so I don't think we got a whole lot of uh, angel investors listening, maybe one or two, who knows. But then, um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, like I said, I, I, I will never say never. You never know. But I'm not going down that path. I don't want to spend time in that path. And, you know, it's kind of inter- I guess it's kind of interesting that I, it, one of the, that I say that is that my investor uh, who in my last company in Prezo was the ideal investor. Awesome guy. 
right. um, a guy named um, Fez Kayam, and he um, he basically said to me when I when I was discussing the initial idea with him because at first he was not he was just kind of serving as an advi- as a friend and advisor because I was raising money from some other sources. And then he just said, hey, you know what, why don't I just put money in it and it'd be just you and I and that way we can just, we just have lunch, you know, every week or two and kind of throw ideas around. And, you know, it's like he's – because he's like, I just want to put – he's like, I just want to invest in Jason Roberts. Whatever you want to do, I believe in you. That's really I mean, good. What kind of invest? What kind of investment deal is that? I mean, that's like the ideal manna from heaven, you know. It's <laughs> like, you know, and, and it just happened that Prezo almost worked out and it didn't quite. We almost got bought by Google, but we didn't. The world almost – worked out the way that just as how I thought it would where Microsoft, Google and Yahoo would get into a three-way race about the next, you know, version of the of Office which would be on the web and there'd be a bidding war for the best independent versions of word of um, word processors and spreadsheets. Yeah. And 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 uh presentation platforms for the web and it didn't quite work out that way, but and so we kind of got, you know, we kind of it didn't work end up working out for us, but you know, Fez um, was supportive and and uh, awesome and completely just the perfect person to work with, you know. Excellent. So there, it was none of those things where he was saying, "Hey, Jason, you really shouldn't do this. You should do this other thing." I mean, but uh, you know, and, he, and it's kind of thing that you know, going forward, I'd like to work with him again. I'd, I'd like to somehow you know figure out a way to you know get him involved, Epic Night, and and, and things like that. But. Right. To be, I, but because I ha I, I haven't been involved with him, I just I think people like him are rare. <laughs> you yeah. know, where it's not That's a true. lot of song and dance and presentations and legal stuff and headache to get things started and it's just you know, he just came in, we didn't we didn't waste a bunch of time with the with stuff. We had a simple contract and wrote a check and then we would just grab lunch whenever he had time. Because he lived near Okay, so um Let's switch on to some other stuff. Um, just quickly, want to talk about the um, submitting Swarm to Apple. Sure. Just, just the process. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a couple of things I want to talk about that. First of all, the, that process, and then second of all, about the whole pricing thing. So the process is it's it's complicated. Like you've got to you you know what it's like when you want to set up um, a secure like an SSL uh, certificate on your server, and you've yeah. got to kind of get it signed. Yeah. And um, you've got to go through a few different things and generate the signing request and all this. You've got to do that essentially twice. You've got to do that once for your development the distribution. Then you've got to do that once for your distributor distributor's uh, certificate. Okay. And so you just have to do a bunch of... Uh, a Wait, bunch so you of, have a developer certificate and a distributor's certificate? Is that well, what they're you, called? You have, you have a certificate for, um, for you as a developer. You have a distributor certificate and you have a development certificate, like a provisioning certificate. Mm-hmm. So there's there's kind of three of these things that you need to get set up, and then you hook them, and then within their admin portal, you kind of hook them all up together. Oh, there's also ad hoc certificates, you know, ad hoc distribution certificates, right. so that you can get them out to testers. And um, yeah, it's just <laughs> like the it's kind of it's kind of complicated. But, well, you know, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up because uh, Mark had, has had been going through that process, and he's sitting next to me while we're working on this iPhone app, and he's sitting next to me. And while I was writing some code, he was working on the provisioning process and finishing right. up, and and he was just pulling his hair out. He's like just cursing Apple. He's like, God, what is going on? And he's like, I did that already. What you know? And it's like screwing up. It was like he was watching the World Cup. <laughs> Same kind of just. Die! But it's like, to, I mean, to get someone else to test your app is so complicated. Like, I mean, I've, I've had a few people who wanted to test the app and I sent them to the page. Uh, are you still there? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I sent them to I sent them to the Apple instruction page, and it's like even just the even just the first part where they send you the unique ID of their device because you've got to register their device within your provisioning portal, right? right? So you register your device within the provisioning portal, then you then you create an ad hoc. A certificate that you then send them a certificate which they then have to install into their iTunes and then you have to extract your application and send them the application and it's I mean I haven't basically been able to get anyone to test it sounds awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing I mean I guess it's just amazing that with a process that convoluted and complicated and frustrating that as many people are developing apps this way I guess I guess if people are motivated enough they'll walk through a swamp if they have to but right you know, it's just, it's a nightmare. You'd think, you know, because everybody talks about how, you know, Apple is so awesome with user experience and they make life so easy. It's like, well, with with the I, this whole Apple, Apple developer licensing and developing apps and provisioning license, it's just, it's just, it's terrible. It's like well, they need to, they need to, I mean, it's like the, it's like the Windows 95. <laughs> I can approach. understand why they've done it because essentially they, they really want the walled garden, right? So yeah. they want to make everything as secure as possible. So they want to make it incredibly difficult to distribute the applications any other way than through the App Store. And they've just done a fantastic job of it because it is really difficult. Like the uh, Rube, Goldberg, Rube Goldberg approach to, uh, to application deployment. <laughs> is you know, Rube you know, Goldberg, Goldberg to, to enlighten us? Well, uh, Rube Goldberg, I think he, they, it's like the Rube Goldberg machines or, or, or systems where they would develop these super complicated, like, uh, contraptions that would, that would do something really intricate. Like, they were arbitrarily and unnecessarily overcomplicated, I think. Right. And it was just, I, I don't really know much about them. I, it's just more of a term than, than anything. You can look up on Wikipedia, but it's probably like, um, but some people talk about things that are just incredibly overly complicated and, and, and complex it's just like a Rube Goldberg machine or something and uh, yeah it's just you think that they could just walk you through a wizard okay step one let's get uh-huh. your developer's license bang bang okay next step great you've done that now I'll just type in here and now we're going to get your distri- distribution license or your provisioning license or this I mean you think they, they could just they kind of do, do have that but it's just it's it's a complicated process anyway so even with that it's just still it's like kind of recursive and mind bending so they still need a few more revisions on that <laughs> right it's the kind of I mean, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like you, just by making that simpler, it's going to make the walled garden any less walled. I mean, it, it, it seems like the process yeah. of setting it up, they should be able to make that streamlined and still make it secure. I mean, it's like it's like so, buying something on Amazon. You can buy a book on Amazon with one click. Your credit card is still secure. Doesn't make doesn't doesn't mean the process of buying a book has to be complicated. So another issue is is that when you put your app into the app store, right, mm-hmm. it takes a week to two weeks for them to review it. And if you submit a new binary that fixes some bugs, that that time period starts again. So yeah. that is frustrating as hell because as I'm using Swarm and I'm using it on the iPad, I'm seeing things that I'm fixing and I'm fixing more and more. And then it's like, like, do I submit this and restart my two-week process or do I just allow and accept the fact that the buggy version's in there and that's going to be version one? And even when you, even if they do kind of put that one out then when you submit your update it has to go through this kind of review process as well like every update gets reviewed as well as every new one so i'm essentially forced to just leave my version one in there with some annoying spelling mistakes and things like that 
and I just have right. to sit here and wait for like one or two weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 you know it's no longer the the web release early release off and yeah you know it's like I'd read an article uh, or a blog post I think it was from um um well, the WordPress guys autom was it automatic or something WordPress.com right and um, maybe I'm confusing something but yeah WordPress.com and they were talking about how they would deploy you know like ten times a day twenty times a day live. Yeah. Like every developer had their own VM and it was on production data and production code and they and people were just deploying constantly. That's what I and, that's what I love personally. Yeah, well yeah, you fix stuff on the fly. So that's like that's taking the release or release off into the to the extreme. And then we got to go back to the whole well, we try and really, you know, the desktop version where you have to burn things on DVDs and create new manuals and you try and get a release out every couple of years. <laughs> So so now think about the whole software, you know, the, the whole software paradigm. Like if you are essentially releasing software, I mean, at least with the App Store, you're just releasing it to one place. So you've just got this one place. When you do an update, it automatically pushes that update. It pushes a notification of the update to everyone's device, right? Mm -hmm. But now imagining you're, imagine you're developing software for three different operating systems. You're pushing it out to download, you know, C CNET and all this other stuff. And there may be a thousand places that has different versions of your software online. So like, you know, two years later, you're dealing with customers who are installing version one of your software, right? Yeah, what's that guy who did, I, I always forget his name, the guy who did Bingo Creator. Right, uh, yeah. McKenzie, um, um, Patrick McKenzie. Yeah. And he, he's written a number of articles about that, how that's just turned into a nightmare because he's still supporting these old, you know, customers, old versions of yeah. stuff. And it's just a nightmare. And uh, yeah, well, anyway, on the iPad and iPhone, I think maybe what you do is maybe shoot for like the um, updating it once a month. You know, it's like, you know, you spend the first two weeks kind of, you know, figuring out what the bug fixes are going to be for this version and getting things done and getting things kind of underway and then start the update process in the final two weeks. And so it's, you get a new version every month. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Something like that. I mean, I don't know if it's a month or six weeks or whatever, but something that's rapid enough so that you're not frustrated, but not so rapid that, you know, it's, it's distracting from actually getting development done because you spend all your time you know, doing certificates and signing crap and, you know. So also then to talk about the pricing aspect, um, I've been doing quite a lot of reading about the different pricing, the different app, app store price points. Right. So the, it seems like the history of it was, was that in the first place, the price point that everyone was trying to aim for was the 9.99 for the iPhone apps, right? That was the first right. price point. But then what happened was people saw that the lower price they pushed it down because it's coming down to the lowest common denominator, the more people that bought it, right? Until it, until you get down to the, the, the 99 cent price point, where basically everyone will just pay for it just like as if it's free. It doesn't really right. make a lot of difference, which in a sense kind of proves the whole micropayment model, right? Which means that if you, if you had content out there and you just charged, you know, a couple of cents for people to view it and there was some global universal account that people probably wouldn't actually mind paying that couple of cents to view every page or to view a couple of pages. But anyway, so um, so developers push the price point down so far and you know what they find is is that these apps for 99 cents, it's, it's kind of like free apps, like they just get bad reviews mm -hmm. because a lot of people who aren't particularly interested in that application are going to download it and buy it. And they're right. like, ah, oh, that sucks, it didn't do what I wanted it to do. And so... I'm, I'm, and the other, the other thing is, is like that these low apps, if you do get on the featured page, then you can get like 20,000, 50,000 downloads a day. Right? right. But for me and for Swarm, I'm thinking, look, I just want, you know, a constant stream of maybe 20 or 30 downloads a day. 
charge something like seven ninety nine, and then that will bring in kind of like you know maybe forty thousand a year. Yeah, that sounds sounds good, man. If that sounds workable, I mean, you don't have to go the mass mass market low price. You can do this sort of boutique approach, high end. This is a specialized product. It actually costs a little bit of money, not a ton, but it ain't free. And uh, and then you can spend your time sort of uh, supporting a smaller customer base and um, and just sort of uh, servicing those people for what they they need and want out of it. I, I've got a sneaking suspicion that there's a bunch of board game geeks out there, people who really like board games, like chess and backgammon and maybe other Risk and things like that. And those kind of people will be happy to pay the seven ninety nine or the nine ninety nine to just even just to try out a new board game concept because they're a board game geek. Yeah. I yeah, I've, I don't you know, see the thing is the thing is that we've been conditioned that to be able to try stuff so often that you're dealing with it's not like you're walking it's not like it was uh, you know or even now we walk into like a hobby store game store and say oh, I'm going to that looks like a cool board game I'm going to buy it right but cuz we're not conditioned to say hey you know tell the guy at the front at the counter I'm going to take this home for a month and if I if I like it I'll 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 come back and pay you <laughs> yeah exactly you can't do would that be like, the no you won't <laughs> you call the police if you walk out the door with that thing you know but on the web that's that's the condition that's what we've been conditioned to come to expect so you're dealing with a different level of expectations which is really people's what people become happy and satisfied with is a lot of it is just based purely on what their conditioning is to uh, for other expectations so with that said you know you I agree that there will be a some number of people that will be willing to pay for it. I just have a feeling that within the context of of the app store and what uh, you may need to consider doing the you know twenty free games or ten. Oh, I'm going to do that. But what I want to wait for okay. is I want to wait for the titanium. Don't have in app pur- purchases working right now. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is I'm going to wait for that, and I just want to push out the one the one app so that people can download that one app for free and then and then within the app they click a button that says upgrade me for 7.99 and okay. inter- interestingly enough this falls exactly in line with what Steve Jobs said which mm-hmm. is when developers are relying on a third party software they mm-hmm. you know you have to wait for that third party to to make the functionality available and that's right. exactly the situation that I'm in right now waiting for Titanium to create that that uh, payment API. If I was right. doing this in Objective-C, yeah, fair enough, it'll take me a lot longer to do, but at least I'd have access to all of Apple's um, core core API stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a trade-off, you know? It's like you can't get, you, you can't have everything, you know? It's like you build it 10 times faster, but, you know, okay, so now you gotta wait a month at the end of the development cycle to get, you know, this one extra API done. I don't think it's a big price to pay. No. You know, I think I think I I doubt there's any party that would seriously consider going back and rewriting this thing in Objective C. Well, right. kudos so. to Accelerator because um, I I signed up for their 30 day free trial premium support, mm-hmm. and I have to say that really helped me get the final push uh, to get it kind of App Store ready. Like it definitely right. would have taken that the, the, there was a few bugs and a few issues that happened, and obviously it was peculiar to my environment and the way that I had my local machine set up. And it was only through talking to their guys that I got, you know, good resolution and was able to basically push it out to the App Store. And essentially, right. it was all to do with um, the certificate stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those certificates set up exactly correctly, then right. AppCelerator can't, can't build it properly. Yeah, and that's why it's not a bad business model for them to just to give the platform away and just charge for support, I guess. Um, right. 
because you were able to to make s- uh, such an increase in your productivity by using their code um, that you, but you may not have quite realized that until you actually used it. Right. If it would, if it cost, if, it, if they said, right, you can, you know, this is going to cost you two hundred dollars a month to use our stuff, you would have been like, no way, in hell. Right. It's funny because in my case, in my particular case, I'm not sure that there has been a huge, huge boost in productivity because essentially, all I'm using of the AppCelerator product is one web view, and then I'm loading in my own HTML and JavaScript, and I've done everything in that. So I'm, I'm, I'm only really using, like, I'd say. I'd say 2% of my code is Titanium and Accelerator code. They just make it convenient for me to wrap up. I'm sure that I could have got the Objective-C and just hooked into WebKit relatively easily. Hmm. Yeah, well, for me, for what I, you know, the iPhone app that I've built for Mark, there's no, there's just no way. We would have, we would have had this thing um, working in any reasonable amount of time, having to learn Xcode and uh, Cocoa and Objective-C from scratch. Well, I've seen the app that you guys have been doing, and it's really good. I was very, very impressed with it. You guys showed it to me yesterday. And I, I, I really like the interface, and I really like the idea. I think it's going to do great. And oh, thank um, you. So you've built that whole thing in AppCelerator. You haven't, you, so, so essentially what you're doing is JavaScript is, an, is, is essentially an abstraction layer to Objective-C, and Accelerator will compile that JavaScript, rewrite it, and convert it into Objective-C. And that is how the app's built, which is, it's, uh, and it, it looks good and works well. Very nice. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Well, yeah, you know, it's, that's essentially what they do. They, 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 they translate the JavaScript. They, they have their own sort of abstraction API, abstraction layer, which works com- compiled to, I guess, Android, Java, or to uh, X, you know, Objective-C for the iPhone. And there, and you just and you just write it in JavaScript. So it's 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 like it's like you're just writing straight JavaScript. It's just you know maybe you had used some um, some third party library for widgets, and you know well this is a view, and this is a window, and this is a label, and this is a table view, and this is a tab view, and this is a image or whatever, right? And once you learn the API, it's just JavaScript, you know, and it's great. So for me, I'm very fast in JavaScript and um, I like coding in JavaScript, so it's nice. The only problem, the only, the only, the only two th- complaints I have, and, and like I said, when, you know, when, I, when I complain, I don't mean that it's a big deal. It's like, overall, I love Titanium. It's just like, these are the two things I said, it would be nice when they get better, which is when the documentation is really limited. They really haven't finished their documentation. I mean, they have one sort of sample at called the kitchen sink, which does pretty much every combination of things that you could do. And so you just kind of have to look through their sample, the source code for the kitchen sink to figure out how they did something. Right? Yep. Oh, I didn't know there was quiet there. I didn't know if you're still there. <laughs> Got kind of quiet. So the there's that, and the and the and the documentation is then and the and debugging is a little weak in the sense the only way that you there's no breakpoints or you know or um, call stacks or you know stepping through code or anything like that, watch windows or anything like that. The only thing you can do is, is just print stuff out to the, to the console. Right. Kind of sort of, sort of like, you know, all, yeah. So, you, you know, which, which is doable. So I mean, basically I have a, you know, million like print statements <laughs> littered throughout the That's code. That's interesting. And, That's interesting because obviously, because I'm developing in JavaScript and HTML, I mean, I'm just using Firebug like normal. So I've got my full debugging. Mm-hmm. Like, but I, but I do know what you mean. Like once you run it in the um, titanium environment, as it's running the program, it, it prints trace statements to its to the Titanium console, and you can see what's going on. Yeah, so we have those littered throughout. So there are times where we just there'll be just literally like there will be print statements when you enter a function and when you exit a function with sort of the you know important values coming in, going out, and obviously a number of them in between if there's a lot going on in that function. So 
that's the only way you could figure out what's going on half times because a lot of times what will happen if you get a runtime error it just doesn't do anything it just completely just doesn't run doesn't throw an error it just stops Okay, you know, so like just, what a, just a hidden critical error, yeah. Yeah, um, like what happened? You just kind of have to go back and go, what was the last uh, print statement we had? It's like, well, oh, this, why like, don't you create like a, like a global trace function and then you can have like a global variable that you just says trace on, trace off. So rather than do, ha- having to keep on removing the print statements, just leave the trace statements in the whole code base and just uh, put an if within your main trace function. Right. Yeah, I guess you could do something like that. That's that's not a bad idea. I hadn't really thought too much about it. I mean, well, yeah. Because at least then you don't have to keep on pushing stuff in and out, and you can watch a whole trace stack going. You know, you just just turn trace on, and you can see that you can see the whole trace stack, and it makes it real fast rather than having to keep on copying and pasting. Those well, how would you how would you view the uh, the variables? So you're talking about tracing a variable, right? Let's, I mean, because you could have hundreds of variables that you're looking at at different times. You'd, what do you mean by that tracing individual variable? Um, How would the UI work for this? What well, you like, I guess what you do is in in your trace in your trace statement, you could either pass in a string or you could pass in an, uh, like an object. And if you passed in a string, it just printed out the string and you line it. If you pass in an object, it just iterated through the object and showed each of the values. And it did. It just had some kind of function that could recursively turn that object into text. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, because the output's still going to be the same. You still only have the output window. I yeah, mean, yeah, the console. Yeah. You, you only have the console, the console window. But at least if you did that, you'd be able to. You could look into all of your variables at any given time. You know, just shove them through your trace. Right. Yeah, that actually is not a bad idea. Especially. Hmm. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I don't know. Um, Thank you. How long would be to write that? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Oh, Very... not, it wouldn't be long to write. I mean, obviously, the, the, the basic trace statement's easy to write, just to pass in a string. And then the object thing, I mean, it, that's just as fast as writing an iteration. I mean, you don't, yeah. need, you don't need to get it to print out, like, multi-deep, deep, deep objects. Just print the yeah. top level of an object if, it's, if it can. If, it's, if, it's an, if, if a property's an int or a text, then print it out. And if it's an object, then just kind of say, eh, it's, you know, array or object or whatever. Yeah, well, that, that would be that. That's probably be useful to do. That might be worth spending, you know, twenty, thirty minutes to write that out, make it work the way you want. That's and, right. And and then in the, at the top of the main trace function, just basically look at your global variable and say if trace is, um, you know, if if the global trace is on, mm-hmm. uh, no, sorry, if global trace is off, then just return out of this function. Yeah, I was working on something on Plugio uh, yesterday, which was to try mm-hmm. and get the the retweet to hook into Twitter's retweet API. Right. As usual, the API and the way that they've done it is just so ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so what? Okay, the way that they've got it is when you go on their website and you go and have a look at who clicked the 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 Twitter specific retweet button, you go to the page that says. Just, Justin, I, I just I lost that whole I lost that whole thing. You went completely silent. Oh, okay. You, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Yeah. So. So basically, when you go to the Twitter website and you go and have a look at who retweeted you, it shows you a list of the, the tweets that you made that were retweeted. And then underneath, it shows you the icons of the people who retweeted that tweet, right? Right. So with their API, you the way that they split it up is there's one call to get a list of the tweets that you made that have been retweeted. And it okay. just gives you a list of tweets and that's it. It doesn't tell you who retweeted them. It just gives you a list of tweets, right? Right. And then for each of those tweets, you've got to make a second call and say, now now here's the tweet ID. 
tell me who retweeted this. So for a page of 20 tweets, you basically have to send 21 requests to Twitter to make the page look the same as on their site. Right. Right. But they give you 150 limit per hour. Oh, man. (laughs) Is that unbelievable? So basically, inherently, you can't possibly build a product as good as theirs. Right. Right. <laughs> so what so what I've had to do is to is to build a system that just says here's here's the things that were retweeted. Click this button to see who retweeted this. Uh, right. <laughs> like horrific. Right. Well, I think there was a there was a uh, <laughs> article or a, a blog post that was out like a week or two ago that said that platforms are for suckers <laughs> or something or for saps or something I like that. I swear to god that's true. You know, it's just a nightmare. It's like it's a pluses and minuses to it. The plus is, of course, you're using something, you're building something that probably a lot of people are going to want to use because it's the platform. People are already on the platform. Now, the bad side, of course, is that you get you have to deal with stuff like this. So, yeah, that's a pain. But you know, you need, you know the face people building stuff on Facebook have run into that stuff all the time. Where, like, even behemoths like Zynga are all of a sudden getting screwed by Facebook, right? But, I mean, imagine being the, the people designing the API and thinking that somehow this was going to be good. I mean, it, they're, they're either saying to themselves, like there's, there's only two, two possibilities here. Either they're just really bad at API, like really bad developers, or they're saying, we're going to make this difficult so that other people can't make it as good as, our, as, good as the Twitter.com. Yeah, I mean, they're not stupid. Right, they're so, not they're not, stupid. so they're not stupid. So they're essentially evil. Yeah, well, a lot of times people always want to. They always there's a there's a sort of saying here like people always want to subscribe any bad thing that happens to like ineptitude as opposed to malice. It's like don't ever subscribe to malice. What can be you know ascribed to incompetence or something. Right. And I think that's way overdone. I think a lot of things are done on purpose because it gives people individual advantage or companies advantage or governments advantage or groups of people an advantage, and they do it on purpose. And it's you know people are like oh well it's just probably because people are incompetent. It's like no. <laughs> there, sometimes thing happens because of incompetence, but a lot of times they happen on purpose, and sometimes they happen because of a combination of the two: a little bit of malice and some incompetence, <laughs> you know. And but Twitter, when it comes to developing their API, API is not incompetence. I mean, there's not that many people working on like that. They're kind clever of thing. guys, right? They're, they're they're clever guys. So they're, they're smart guys. They're, whatever they do. It's, for the most part, by design. They, they sat down, they had a number of conversations about it, and they said, this is the way we want to do it, and this is the reason we're going to do it this way. Amazing. No so, so, we'll, so, yeah, so basically the suckers using our platform are going to have to use up 21 of their 150 per hour limit displaying this page. And it's yeah, not going to look fine on Twitter. <laughs> I guess to some degree, if you're Twitter, what you don't want to become is a dumb pipe. You know, you want to be the end user platform. You know, you don't, I guess to some degree, people who use, have these sort of power clients, power Twitter clients like Plugio and like some of these other ones that are out there, um, TweetDeck or whatever they, I don't know what people use. Right. Then, you know, there, there, some of that is probably helpful for Twitter because they allow these power users to really get engaged and probably make the Twitter experience more interesting because of these power users doing stuff with it. But at the same time, um, they, they want to limit it down so that it's not going to push them out to where all these Twitter clients are just what people use and nobody uses Twitter itself. And it's just like a dumb information exchange. Yeah. But, but I mean, there, there is the other approach, which is to say, look, okay, we are going to, we are going to make it free. We are going to make it open. We're going to make it completely that way. And we are going to be clever enough to think of how to monetize our system 
even if Twitter is that dumb information exchange. We're going to be that clever. We're going to raise our game of our, our business development game rather than do these kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is, but just evil little tactics. Mm-hmm. You know? Like I, don't, I just think that they could, I think that they could play a better game than that. That's all. I don't think that, you know, it feels to me like, like Google have played a better game than, than these, these Twitter guys are doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, what, wait, give me your, what, why has Google done a better job? What have they, what, how have they been less evil? Like, let's say this is evil. Let's say you want to call this evil, right? And, and it's not really evil, but it's just, it's, they are limiting what users can do because they don't want you to compete with them. Just like what Apple does, right? Apple doesn't allow you to compete with them with certain apps on the iPhone, right? It's not evil. It's just self-interest. Well, okay. I'll tell you how, because Google, when, when they've developed a product, they haven't, they haven't. 99.9% 99.9% of the time for all the products they've developed, they've kept it free. They found a way of keeping it free. They've found a way of building in the maximum features into it that that is the same for as if you had a paid product somewhere else. So, for example, <laughs> Analytics is essentially... I mean, if you think about the product that Google Analytics is, like, it's an amazingly powerful product. Like, right. And they could definitely charge a significant premium for that product. But right. it's, it's completely free. <clears throat> it's completely free. And the reason is, is because they've been clever enough to build it into their entire ecosystem, their entire business model. Right. Right. So you compare that to the Twitter API way of doing things. It's just a, it's just a different ballgame. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I bet there are probably examples of it where Google has been, their self-interest has worked against the end user. Uh, but you may be right. Maybe I, maybe I, because well, I can think I, of one. I, I'm not saying that Google haven't done a whole bunch of evil. I'm just saying that like in, in, in this scenario, I think that with this type of thing, Google have played a good game. I mean, Google have other issues, which is, you know, they'll put entire companies out of business just by slightly tweaking their algorithm. <laughs> or, or they'll put they'll companies out of business by giving everything away for free in which they kill the whole category. Yeah, It's what they yeah. call, we'll, we'll create something that is maybe not awesome, but good enough that the free version will keep people from wanting to use anything else. And they call that the Google nuclear winter, it, which yeah. when they were, was starting to happen a lot in 2006, 2007, is they just kept coming out with all, releasing all these free web-based applications and it was just like well great now what it's like so no one else can go in there because you're just going to do it and just you say it's like all the company used to get in charge for an anti-competitive um the anti-competitive behavior because they call it dumping right Right. you just dump your products in in a market for free to put out your you put your competitors out of business that's essentially what they did i mean that's kind of what happened to prezo in a sense that they just came out with a google docs and just gave away for free with no charging we're just going to dump on this whole category nobody can enter this space well, because I, yeah so you you're particularly sensitive to it because you've been you've been suffer from it but i mean for mm-hmm. example the analytics thing um there's a number of competitors who make money even though google analytics is great mm-hmm. you know there's there's a company called clicky.com who mm-hmm. do a great analytics product and and they you know they do a product that is essentially in some ways better than the google analytics and there's a couple of other product, uh, other companies as well who charge, you know, significant amounts for Google's same free products. So it's not like you can't compete with their free product because sometimes people really want to pay. It's like, you know, Peldy said, you know, like people I really don't want to pay. want to pay. They're, be, they're willing to pay. Uh, no, I mean, well, look, I mean, th- this is going to sound funny, but I don't like free products. Like I, I much prefer to pay for things personally because I feel much more of a, co- like there's much more of a contract between the developer and me and uh, you know, being able to get support, like I just know that if I contact a developer who's actually making money for his product, he's going to be 
a thousand times more likely to respond and get and get stuff fixed. Yeah, and I, I think what you say makes a lot of sense. I think you're you're right about that. If you pay for things, the the the, the companies or the individuals who make the products are, are going to be able to continue to, to make the products better and support them and and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, that's sort of an enlightened view. I don't think most people fall into that category. I don't know, I mean, you're I don't also yeah. you're also a, your own you're an entrepreneur. You're your own developer, so you're sensitive to to people sort of yeah it's like it's like a karmic thing like i feel that if i pay then people will pay me so there is that aspect to it as well (laughs) yeah i I was talking to a guy at the gym uh the other day and he's a a writer director and he was talking about how you know a friend of his was watching the movie avatar before it was even released and he's you know because people are getting the bootleg versions of this stuff and 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 spreading it around on the web and other places and he's like and someone called to him and said hey man you want a copy he's like no man he's like i don't want that he's like you know i'm a director you're 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 hurting me yeah right yeah yeah. you know you are hurting me he's like don't you know it's so it's like as writers directors are very sensitive to to like people you know stealing movies and getting bootleg copies and get them out there he's like you're killing me he he also made another interesting comment i thought I, i i i so we're sitting here talking about i i asked him i said well, what I said, by the way, what shows do you watch? You know, as a writer and director, I said, what do you find interesting on TV? I said, and I asked him, I said, so what do you think of The Lost End? Do you watch Lost or what do you think of that ending? I thought from a writer, I'm very curious what writers would have thought of that. And, you know, just because Lost did not tie up a lot of loose ends and all this kind of stuff, yeah. I, I just thought it would be interesting. And he's like, you know, he's like, I don't really watch a lot of TV. <laughs> I was like, I, I said, and I thought that was really funny because I've had two other friends who are writers, directors, and they don't watch many TVs and much TV either and they don't want and they don't see movies very often and and I said why is that I mean that's kind of strange is it kind of like the sense that you start speaking like you know how if you read a book or two if you start writing you almost write in the voice of the author that you last read it infects your voice a little bit yeah yeah. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of in your head and, and it affects you. He's like, but the other thing is, he's like, if I'm not working, he's like, if I'm not work writing and I'm sitting at home and I'm watching somebody else, I'm helping them beat me. <laughs> I am there watching their stuff. <laughs> instead of working, they got me, right? I should be working on my stuff. Instead, I'm watching their stuff. <laughs> that's that's kind of silly. That's kind of silly. I never I mean, thought about that. It, I thought like, that was it's, kind of it's like it's good. It's good, you know, like, for example, as a musician, I mean, I always made a point of listening to new albums come out because you, you hear interesting new techniques and those techniques can kind of, you know, inspire you. And it's the same with software. When you look at people's software and the, you know, I've, during, during this process of building the iPad game, like I've been downloading lots of other people's iPad games and seeing exactly where the competition is and, and you know, how, how, do, how much do I need to raise my game, you know, in terms of the graphics, in terms of the, the feel of the use of it, the UI, all that stuff. Like, how would I, I know if I didn't do any, you know? No, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think you have to um, be aware of what's going on out there, but you got to be care- not. You don't want it to affect your your writing. And it's like two two things it reminds me of. I think. Do you remember the movie um, Biloxi Blues? No. With uh, Matthew Broderick it was out no. in like the eighties or something. He goes in the army. So this is kind of a funny movie, and he's he he wants to be a writer in the movie, and he and he mentions this, this like this sort of this sort of bookworm um, bunkmate of his, and he asks him like, so how do I become a writer? He's like, you want to become a writer? Go read every book in the New York public library right right yeah <laughs> and he's like uh okay you know, read a lot you know if you want to be a good writer you need to not only do you need to write but you need to read and 
but at the same time, what's interesting about that, we talk about inf- you're getting your voice infected. I remember reading um, a few years back, they were talking about the, the movie Pulp Fiction when that first came out. Yeah, yeah. How for a number of years after that, so many movies were infected by Pulp Fiction. Like everything was sort of um, started to become Pulp Fiction-like. There same, were a lot same of with The Matrix. Of, yeah, it's like it just it just you know everything was a footnote to to uh, to the Matrix or to Pulp Fiction. It just if something is really good and really interesting and kind of new, yeah. it just everything starts to look and behave like it. And and um, that's one thing I you know that sometimes I have to be careful of when I'm working on the stuff that I'm working on. It's like I don't really want to look at what anyone else is doing because I don't want it to um, sort of influence what I'm doing. I want to do well, the I think right a perfect example thing. of that is, is Apple and, and the app store and Apple design and that whole thing. Like they essentially have, you know, changed the way that people need to <laughs> distribute products. You know, mm-hmm. iTunes as well as have had a, you know, a massive impact. Hey, listen, just, just want to change the subject to one thing, which is, um, I, I think we should have a new weekly segment to the show mm-hmm. and it should be called Jason's gym chat. <laughs> Jason's gym chat. Yeah. Okay. So random conversations at the gym. Yeah, because you always seem to have these kind of crazy random conversations at the gym with different people and I don't know, like porn actors and uh, you know writers and just weird people. So uh, <laughs> what are yeah, we just well, I, well, here's the thing. I'm I obviously love to talk and I'm really <laughs> social. I talk to everybody, and so right. I go to the gym. You know, five to six days a week, and you know. Play basketball, lift weights, that kind of stuff, and especially when you play basketball, you're because you're, a lot of times people generally put their headphones on, they just lift weights or do the you know run on the treadmill, and that's all they do, and they don't really socialize. I talk to everybody, I know hundreds of people, right? So when I'm there, it's like it's like hey, you know what's going on? I'm talking to people at the front desk, I'm talking to people you know at the kids club and the trainers and all the people I play basketball with, some of the guys I lift weights with. So I'm talking with tons of people, and so I'm sitting at home working. It's just me, and maybe I'm talking on the phone to a few people that I work with on these various contracts or with Guyana working on our project. So I don't interact with the larger world <laughs> very much. So the gym is kind of like the one place where I go. It reminds me of like college when you would walk on campus and you'd be running into dozens of, of friends of yours throughout the day. It just and sounds so- hideous to me. I mean, I just couldn't do that. Like, I mean, basically, the only people I interact with are my clients and you. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. I don't have that. I mean, I just, the idea of going out and talking to, a, you know, just a whole bunch of random strangers, to me, is like hell on earth. Like, that's just so opposite to how I want to want to be. Well, I don't, I don't it's, go It's interesting sh- that you do that. Like, it's, it's it, I, I admire people who can do that, right? I admire people who, who just want to get involved with a whole bunch of discussions like that well i don't it, you know usually it's joking around it starts with joking around like you're playing basketball and you start making fun of yourself or somebody else right. or them you're joking around and then and then you know you just I, that's why i like joking around and just you know and over time over years of doing of being in this place you just slowly over time you know because when you're playing basketball you're talking with guys in your team right you're joking around you're well, talking with them so you talk after the game you're talking with them so you become friends with these people I mean, Georgie's dad's exactly like that. So, you know, if, we're going, if we go to a movie and we're all going as a, as a family, uh, Georgie's my wife, um, and we're all going as a family, like, he, we'll be in a line and he'll just start talking to everyone in the line. And it's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> of course, my mom is the my, same way. Me with my British reserve, I'm like, <clears throat> excuse me. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. My mom's the same <laughs> way. She's like, everyone. <laughs> my mom is the same way. And I, I'm kind of like that, too. I start joking around with people in elevators and I start just, to, you know, because there's, really, there's always like these awkward silence. Everybody's just kind of standing there, kind of looking at nothing. And so it's always to break the ice and just say something kind of unexpected and f- making people laugh. It's uh, 
you know, it just makes life more fun, more enjoyable. You, you don't think it remains as as awkward, but now we're just talking and it's just awkward talking rather than awkward silence. Oh, I don't like I like I said, if, if I don't have something funny to say, I don't <laughs> just start talking for the hell of talk, you know, for hell of it. I just I, if because it'll if, if I can find something funny to say, then it amuses me and I'm enjoying myself. And if I can make <laughs> them laugh and a lot of times what will happen is you'll say something there'll be a third or fourth person like in this area around you and you'll be talking to a friend of yours and you'll say it purposely because it's going to make everybody laugh, you know, and you start seeing them kind of snickering to themselves and then you kind of look at them and you're like, yeah, <laughs> and it just, it just makes life better, I think. So, um, actually, you know, well, you know what's gotta, funny just, just, just before you, just before you say we're, we're going to wrap up, um, one, one of the things that indicates <laughs> my, uh, my kind of limited social circle is I've now started playing Swarm with the gardener <laughs> oh. <laughs> when he comes well, around there you once go. a week. <laughs> but it's, he's actually like he's actually really good at the game. It's funny. Like he's getting close to beating me now. Good. Well, you know, like I said, you make make fun, with, make make friends wherever you can. You know, it's what life's all about. It's other people. You know, it's That's just right. interacting with other people. And uh, I don't know when I when I'm sitting here at home all day yeah you know i'm just dying to get social and get out in the world and that's why i need to go work out and i need to go talk to people and joke around and just kind of not think about computers and code and yeah. you know contracts and like that but i got a couple real quick things oh shoot, for, shoot. so one is the quote of the day or quote of the week right Remember the oh, quote of the week yeah, yeah 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 quote so of i week. purposely i have a whole list of ones so i pick one out it's like the and i may have used some of these in the fast but i can't remember them is the best way to predict the future is to invent it alan k Nice. I think that should be our quarter of the week. Nice. Um, and uh, so one thing, and, and the reason that I have to go is I'm taking um, my son Colby, who's five, to this gym called the White Lotus Gym. <laughs> it's right. a uh, it's a free. It's called a free running gym. It's a kind of martial arts slash free that's running the, gym. Is that par- parkour? Parkour. That, yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyone who's familiar with parkour, look it up on Wikipedia or free running. And if they saw Casino Royale, the James Bond movie from a few years back, where James Bond is chasing after this guy and they're running through his construction site and the guy's doing all these crazy flips and jumps and over all these obstacles, that's called free running or parkour. Right. Parkour was invented in France, and the English sort of translation of it has become free running, although they've slightly diverged. But free running, when I think of it, at least my interest in is the ability to do all these crazy like tricks and flips and stuff so like guys running up the side of a wall and doing a backflip off it or a front flip off it or you know just doing all these unbelievable acrobatic things out in the world not just on sort of gymnastics equipment and uh, my my one of my best friends like, I grew up with uh, Mitch he was he's a stun professional stuntman and he's a great acrobat gymnast martial artist right. and um my son Colby is extremely athletic and loves to do this kind of stuff. So I have he's when he was four last summer he was doing backflips off of a chair into our pool. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of like that. So I mean, I've been throwing him in the air. Like we go down to the pool and I'll just throw him in the air and have him do flips and you know he'll do backflips and front flips and flip twists and all this stuff in the pool. So did you show him the parkour stuff on YouTube? Yeah, so the way the whole thing started is, is I, I, you know, Sandy took the kids to visit her parents last weekend, so I had a free night to just go and, you know, catch up with Mitch, which is usually what happens when I'm left here to get work done for a weekend. I'll just call Mitch up one of the nights and I have to go grab some sushi or something, and we always end up just 
you know, I was hanging around just talking about random stuff. And he said, Hey, you know, I got you got to see some of this free running stuff. And he's like, these guys, he's like, I do, he's like, cause he goes to these gyms and works out and does this acrobatic stuff. Right. And he's like, you're not going to believe some of the sick stuff these guys do now. It's like, didn't exist five years ago. He's like, I can't do this stuff now. It's, he's like, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> the stuff I do. And so he showed me this, this video, a five minute video. And I was like, it was, it was awesome. And I showed Colby and Colby was just lighting up. Right. He's like, wow. <laughs> you know, cause whenever we go running, walking around the block, he's running and jumping over, over everything, you know? And so he's doing his own five-year-old version of free running. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I, I call Mitch and I'm saying, hey, what do you think? Would it be possible I could bring, you know, a Colby with me and maybe we could tag along to the gym with you? Um, he's, he goes to Valley Community College is near where he lives. And he they, on Sunday, Saturday mornings or something, it's open. And all these gymnasts and martial artists and people and stunt people will be there doing all their workouts. And I thought maybe we could go and watch. And so I called him up. He's Mitch was like, no, no. He's like, we'll go to the White Lotus gym. He's like, it's totally just what this stuff's all about. It's all these free runners. He's like, come pick me up and we'll drive up to Northridge. And we're going to spend like three hours there. So Colby is just like bouncing up the walls. That's cool. So that's going to be kind of, uh, kind of fun. So I'll let you know how that works out. Oh, and the one thing, I, the other topic I wanted to bring up real quick before I uh, get out of here is, you know, the whole desk thing, the, the standing sitting desk thing. I yeah. a guy on standing desk at, um, and, and for anyone who's new to the podcast, guy is his uh, friend of mine. I work with on uh, Epic night who lives in Norway and he, he, so he got a, uh, he got a stand up desk. He switched with somebody and got one of these desks that can be, um, you sit down or you can raise it and be standing up. And he said he does it almost all day now. He doesn't even he, sit. He's, oh, he's standing up all day. He oh, loves that's it. Good. That's good. He loves it. Feels great, and he almost never sits down. And because I was asking, him, I was like, "So what do you do? Like twenty minutes at a time?" He's like, "No, like almost all day." <laughs> and after he said that, I'm like, "Wow!" I said, "Maybe I should try this, right?" So yeah. I go and um, I I went to uh, we have like a breakfast bar in our kitchen. You have one of those like breakfast bars where it's kind of like at that yeah, stand up height. What you mean? Yeah. You sit like a bar stool is kind of around it neat. So, but if you're standing up, it would be perfect for the stand-up height. So, and I have a laptop sitting there that I usually check my email and kind of read Hacker News and stuff while I'm like, you know, eating my breakfast or, or whatever. And I like tried to stand up work for like three minutes. I'm like, no, <laughs> this doesn't work for me at all. I'm like, this is totally, I just want to sit. All I'm thinking is I want to sit out. Well, you can get, so, you can get used to it, you know. It obviously takes a bit of practice. I, I think so. I think you're probably right. It's just funny. I just, I leave for like three minutes. I'm like, oh, this sucks. I couldn't do this. We, well, we've done well. We've, I mean, we've got a, a lot of material, and I thought that we'd be a bit more limited. But um, what was what was the cutoff time? Was it ten fifteen? Yeah, I'm I'm late now. Anyway, I had a bunch okay. of other stuff too that I wanted to talk about. Comments about comments, um, oh, yeah. but uh, we'll just have to you know cut it there, I guess. And we'll pull that know. through. Pull that through next week. No, I think that's uh, yeah. That's been a good. That's been a good chat. Cool. All right, man. I I guess that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>